This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. We are told we should have household emergency plans, perhaps in case of fire. Do you have one? Fiona Wood has written about more light-hearted plans in how to spell catastrophe. Welcome back, Fiona. Thank you, Jen. Lovely to be here. Nell McPherson is a catastrophe expert. My favourite, just in case you are accidentally locked inside a lion's cage, it is most important to learn how to pick a lock from YouTube beforehand. <laughs> oh, <fair enough. laughs> well, did you have a favourite catastrophe prevention? Look, I, they were such fun to write, Jan, but I must share with you that I had to learn from YouTube how to pick a lock myself when I locked my keys into my luggage when I was in Italy a couple of years ago. So I know that you can very successfully learn how to do that sort of lock picking from YouTube. But uh, when I was writing the catastrophes uh, for Nell, who is a catastrophe expert and really feels, you know, she lives with her anxiety in a pretty accepting way, and she's and she's had therapy, but she feels that you know knowledge uh, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. So she just she keeps her notebook of catastrophe facts and information, and thinks that if she's thought of everything in advance, then she probably can't be taken unaware, and she should be okay. So one of my favourite uh, catastrophe notebook entries to write was the fashion catastrophes because when we think of that as a as a phrase we think oh someone looked terrible or they turned up somewhere in the same garment but from Nell's point of view a fashion catastrophe is a very literal thing so it will be a huge flood of period blood on white trousers or electrocuted by the metal spoke on your umbrella or you know a penis zipped into a fly something like that so she's got a very clear-eyed take on the world of catastrophes and they were uh, they were fun to write and I have to also confess I'm a catastrophist too I have uh, spent a lot of my life reeling myself back in from worst case scenarios so that was very accessible um, material for me to write and I enjoyed it. It sounds as if Nell has a lot of life experience but she's not that old is she? She's not, but she's like, I think, a lot of only children who spend a lot of time with adults. She's a, she's a clever girl and she's spent a lot of time, you know, with her mother and with her grandmother and a thoughtful girl who, when she was seven, uh, realised that because her, her father had died when Nell was a baby, that meant, you know, this is a light bulb, terrible light bulb moment for her when she realised that meant anyone could die at any time. And that's when she started to think seriously about the whole realm of catastrophes and how they might impact her. She is a serious warrior, so much so that she did have meetings with Grace Leong. And I think this is interesting for kids to read about this too. Yeah, so Grace, Grace Leong uh, is a therapist whom Nell saw when she first, you know, had that sort of big spike of anxiety about the idea of death and dying, which is quite a common thing at around the age of seven, which is when Nell had it. So it's a little bit of backstory because Nell's in grade six in this in this um, narrative space. Um, and so she went, started to see Grace then, and Grace helped her deal with, look at her worries, look at the source of the worries and give her some strategies to cope with her worry and anxiety. I think that idea of uh, therapy and that sort of help for younger children is much more accessible now and 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 sort of socially acceptable we're much better about talking 
um, about mental health for, for children than we were certainly when I was a child. Well, she's one of the smarties in grade six, along with her best friend, Cecily. They're in the leadership group, the best successful spellers in the school spelling bee. They take things seriously and do them well. They're best friends. But then along comes Plum Clarkson. Yeah, so Plum comes at that enticing time of year. Remember what it was like in primary school? If a new person came into a class group partway through the year, and that's what Plum does, and she's a disruptive element for sure. She's a cool new girl in term three, and Nell is intrigued by her, interested in her, and, and, and you know really interested in seeing if she can be Plum's friend. And that causes friction with her old friends like Cecily and Gus, her old spelling bee friends. And Plum to Nell represents what the, what the future might look like, what next year might look like, what high school might look like. She just has a sort of an aura of, I guess she's just a new girl, she's different, she comes to school without her uniform yet, so she's got her stylish clothes on. She's just ticking all the boxes for new, exciting friend. And she encourages... Nell to do things that Nell knows she shouldn't but is testing that boundary. Yes, so so much so. And in fact, um, Nell, uh, with, her, with her grandmother who lives in Glasgow, uh, Nell reads books over Skype and the book they're reading in narrative space is Northern Lights by Philip Pullman, which has a, a very adventurous protagonist, Lyra. And so Nell is, she's got both the real life um, presence of Plum Clarkson and she's got the, the, the fictional influence of Lyra, who's a very adventurous, you know, brave character. And those two things come together to prompt Nell to take a few risks, to bend a few rules. It's quite uncharacteristic for her, but this is the time she's doing that. And things at home are a bit difficult for Nell because her mum has blindsided her with a decision. Oh. Yes. So it absolutely ruins Pizza Friday for Nell, which is a, a, a tradition that she and her mother have. Every Friday they have pizza and a movie together. And on one Friday her mother announces that or she's planning for her and Nell to combine households with Ted and his daughter Amelia, who is in Nell's eyes, a very annoying seven-year-old. Nell is very good at making lists and she has a plan to get rid of Ted. She's thinking of finding another man for a mother, spying on him and proving he has another girlfriend, pretending she is allergic to him and that he is noisome, <laughs> olfactorily <laughs> upsetting her. Now, she's good at words, this young girl. So, noisome? Mm, he smells bad. <laughs> I love offering a little bit of wordplay and vocab extension in books, but in order to do that so that it feels integrated, you do need something like the idea of someone being involved in spelling bee and looking at vocab lists and having an interest in words and etymology. And so that's how I can bring words like, you know, malodorous and noisome in when, when, as part of Nell's arsenal in um, objecting to Ted. At school, you know, she's in, as we said, the top upper area and they have to give a school talk about what is important to me. This is where the book takes on a very different tract and this is sort of something I think you've given a lot of thought to. So what's the subject that Nell chooses to speak on? 
Mm, so she becomes in, very engaged in the idea of climate action. And I didn't want to start the book with a character who was already an engaged climate activist. I wanted us to see progression of that interest in Nell. So in fact, at the beginning of the book, despite her, you know, her very clear-eyed interest in catastrophes of all sorts, she's decided that climate change is just too big and too scary. She can't take that on. So she sort of looked away. And that um, avoidance of it initially was partly to do with the fact that she and her mother were in Malacuta, you know, like only a week before the catastrophic bushfires went through that region. And, and she that really traumatised, the idea of that traumatised her. So she has been sort of looking looking away from it, really, trying not to worry too much about it. And that's despite the fact that her grandmother's a member of uh, Extinction Rebellion, so she's a, a very strong activist. But it's not until Nell drops out of Spelling Bee and her grade six teacher, Alex, says, okay, now because you're in the leadership group, you need to propose another extracurricular activity. And she starts looking into this idea of climate change, climate action, being now dives into the research head first and and realize and she has this moment where she thinks you know far from this being too big and scary you know to look at it is way too big and scary in such an emergency and I have to look at it so she does she does undergo that sort of flip from avoiding it to facing it and uses it as you say for as the subject for her class talk and then through that, campaigns for her whole year level to go to school strike for climate. You put in a reading list in this book. Uh, Nell has a comment about school librarians. And, of course, this was my past career, so I felt this strongly. What was Nell's comment? She's talking about her mother objecting to the fact that not every primary school has a school librarian. And her mother's appalled at that and, in fact, uh, Nell's school has a library function. So there are there are books that go, you know, that get sent around to various classrooms and get distributed. But there isn't that special person who we know is a crucial person in every primary school and every secondary school who will say to every reader, what are you enjoying? What sort of book are you looking for? If you liked that, you'll love this. Mm -hmm. Let me show you this graphic novel because I know you're not enjoying reading big slabs of text at the moment. Or, you know, the, the school librarian will, will give a thousand enticing invitations to every reader. And, of course, just an essential part of education. Uh, so, so, yes, I think Nell's, Nell repeats her mother's um, her mother's appalled stance that that the school doesn't have a dedicated librarian. Fiona Wood, your previous books have been aimed at young adult readers. It's a distinctly different readership with distinctly different requirements. It took me ages. I mean, I'm a slow writer anyway, but it did take me a long time to sort of to, to hear Nell's voice properly. The main thing I had to do with that was just to really be able to sink into myself at that age, at the age of about 11. And I strangely, I was really helped by finding a photograph of myself at that age looking really miserable <laughs> and that just gave me a little portal into getting the level of anxiety right for the character. But then there are other things too, um, more craft-based things that I was conscious of. So this book has got, as you would have seen, a lot of very, very short chapters. And it was something that I was talking about with my lovely editor, Emily Gale, who's also a fan, one of my favourite writers. She was reminding me a lot to give the younger end of the readership 
lots of sort of little assistances to get through so that some somebody who might be reading a chapter a night will feel very encouraged if there are lots of short chapters and they can they can move through the material well with that in mind too I you know there are different sections to break the text up so there are the catastrophe notebook pages which are graphically designed to provide a visual break and uh, the Friday Friday notes from under the doona also look different and when text messages are sent they're set out so that they they look graphically like text messages so if a reader were to flick through the book you know I hope that they would see short chapters a visual variety in in the text and lots of pages with plenty of white space so they're not you know they're not too, sort of too overwhelmed by dense dense prose but at the same time remembering what it was like to be that age I think it's a really fascinating age it's that sort of liminal age where you know you're yes you're a child but you're also pretty much a teenager so you're on the cusp of a lot of things and people of this age are smart and they're well read and they're exposed to the whole world greater rate than certainly I was as a child or even you know as than my children were in that age so it's a really interesting age group and it was it was a big shift. Grade six is a year of growth and change, with puberty happening to climate awareness. Fiona Wood has also included blending families and humour in How to Spell Catastrophe. Thank you, Fiona. Thanks, Jan. And now it's David's turn. It is in the ordinary, everyday things of life that we find majesty and meaning. Hilda Hinton's latest work, A Solitary Walk on the Moon, touches on such majesty. So, Hilda, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks for having me, David. Evelyn's your lead character in this story, and for want of a better word, she is ordinary. And I, and I don't mean that unkindly. Let's expand and explore her character for a minute. Yeah, so Evelyn, Evelyn has the laundromat in a strip of shops. She monitors her community from a distance because she likes to stay emotionally distant from people. Um, whenever she gets too close in, in her past, she's run and started a new life somewhere else. Um, so she's a bit, of a bit of a runner when she gets too close and she's decided to have a laundromat which gives her the tools to stay at a distance from the community but also be part of something. But unfortunately, she does get involved she follows people home from the laundromat in case they ever need her help. Um, she's not a stalker, she's a helper. And quite often it turns out that it's a good thing she's followed them home because uh, she's able to extend a helping hand on many occasions. She's also interested in trivial things. There's the shower head where she sort of estimates how tall people would have been at different times of the century based on where the shower head is, and she Googles. Yeah, yeah. well, she lives life in the minutiae because she's well aware that the big things in life and the larger problems tend to take care of themselves. So she largely focuses on the smaller things and the little things, um, which is where she finds points of interest and amusement and everyday things that tickle her fancy. Now, you've said that she likes to keep emotionally distant, but ironically... She has this facility for bringing people together and she almost creates an entire family. There's Ben, June, Don and Phil and perhaps we need to just sort of 
yeah. break these open a little. Ben is the one that is perhaps the most touching and constant uh, throughout the story. Yeah, so every Tuesday, um, a young a young mother who's not terribly interested in her own child uh, comes in with a very curious boy who's eight when we meet him. And Evelyn loves Ben coming on Tuesdays and offers him bakery treats and sits down and answers his uh, questions that he asked the week before. And Ben is very dear to her and she sort of accidentally gets closer and closer to him um, as he finds himself getting into various problems, uh, either at school or with his mother. But she also befriends Don, who uh, works in a local paint shop. She goes in to buy a tin of paint, follows him home, and realises that Don is one of those genuinely nice fellas um, that's largely invisible. And, you know, she doesn't think that Don should be invisible just because he's so nice. You know, why, why don't the people around him see him? So she sort of befriends him, befriends young Ben, reluctantly Ben's mother, uh, and a forgetful old gentleman uh, in a park who we sort of find out has a bit of PTSD. And together the group forms a bit of a patchwork family. And just like in real life, not all family is blood and we all have people in our lives that we consider family. And many people get together this way. Yeah, and she accidentally finds herself uh, in a family, which is the last thing, of course, that she wanted. But also Ben's mother, June, is somewhat challenged. Yeah, she's got addiction issues and she's not a natural mother, but she does her best, which just isn't good enough. And, yeah, she sort of drifts in and out of Ben's life and tries to stay but can't quite manage that. And Evelyn's left to pick up those pieces. It seems that Evelyn is or has an instinctive capacity to bring things or bring people together. And there's a curious incident at a swap meet for model train bus where she causes chaos based on her instinctive approach to things. Now, I don't want to give away the ending. It's a chapter or two after we encounter it, but it's other than what we expect. So there's the chaos. She's chastised for what she does. What is taking place there? Yeah, well, she, uh, as I mentioned, Philip, before, he's a model train collector and he invites her to a swap meet. And Evelyn's prone to getting a bit overexcited. Um, it's sort of connected, connected in with her uninhibited desire to follow people. And she gets to this swap meet and she can't believe um, the enthusiasm of the collectors around her and all the different trains and hills and trees and things that make these little imaginary worlds that she, she dives into. Um, and she decides to swap items around in people's bags and creates quite a kerfuffle, which leads to her new friend not wanting to play with her. Just because you're a grown-up doesn't mean that things like that hurt any less than they do when you're little. She's playing on the competitiveness, or that's antithetical yeah. to the way she approaches life. And let's just say the outcome later on is other than what we expect. But I want to move on to another character now, whom we never really see or meet, and that is Dee, who has fraudulently used <laughs> her connections yeah. to extort money from people. But ironically, Dee has a very similar skill set to Evelyn. 
Yeah, this is true. There's a few characters you'll find all have uh, some similarities, but have made different choices. Not just decision making in in actions in life, but also with how to how to handle your own flaws and foibles, and manage yourself. And Evelyn sort of becomes a bit of an amateur detective in a way when she finds out about this missing girl. And it turns out that it's all quite nefarious. And yes, they do have similarities. It's very hard to talk about it without giving away the plot. Um, but suffice it to say, you can have a few people with similar traits that end up being completely different and living completely different lives. Well, it shows how they can be put to different ends. One's skill uh, yeah. can be used to support. And inadvertently, Evelyn simply finds herself helping people and yeah. creating virtually a family. But then after this family is created of Don, Phil, June, Ben and Evelyn, the book twists. There's an element of pathos that's introduced, which is in fact very much true to life. Evelyn actually leaves because she, she doesn't feel as if she belongs or is connected any longer. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, it's a bit like a, a sort of sour lolly. The closer she gets to love, the more distaste she has in her in her mouth and her person. She doesn't cope with being close. Um, it all happens by accident and she finds herself in dilemma that she's faced in the past, which is, you know, does she run? Does she stay? Um, she's never been able to stay in the past and, and this surely is as close as she's ever going to get to staying. And that's, that's the moral dilemma in life, I suppose. You know, I think, I think one of the things about this book is everyday people have extraordinary elements to their lives um, and the people we walk past on the street every day um, also have extraordinary times and moments and characteristics so really, really, I think you nailed it on the head. There's something every day about all these characters and all these life situations. So it's a book of sort of sadness, but also hope. It's happy, it's sad, it's funny, and the dilemmas of life are everyday dilemmas. They're not, they're not extraordinary. Um, but what perhaps is extraordinary is uh, the choices they make to deal with the decisions they have to make. There's also another twist because... We find Ben later on in his life, and it seems he and June have drifted apart. Even though June has recovered during the mainstay of the story, we now find they've drifted apart as well. That unity has dissipated. Yeah, I don't love nice tie-offs and happy endings for no reason. Um, June is a, is a struggling drug addict and does her best to stay clean and as happens in real life just can't quite manage it even uh, despite having um, the pull of a child to to keep her clean you know these things happen in the real world and I think often in books uh, yeah there's a there's a leaning towards happy endings and just because an ending isn't happy per se doesn't mean things aren't okay because things can be perfectly fine um, without what we traditionally label a happy ending. And I was just wondering then if there were any parallels between Evelyn and June and Dee for that matter. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a sense that at some point they've all had a sliding doors moment and that they all could have ended up each other. So, 
Yeah, I just I just think it's an interesting twist uh, to see different lives from similar traits and characteristics. They could have all gone on to achieve something rewarding or filling, fulfilling. Yeah. And even when they do, they don't necessarily appreciate it. At which point I went back to the prologue. And there is Ben visiting a grave, but we never really find out whose grave it is? No. Well, um, I mean, it's indicated in the prologue, so no spoilers. Uh, it's indicated in the prologue that it's the father that was never his father. So, yeah, I just... <laughs> um, it's hard. Jeez, it's a difficult one to talk about without giving away plots, isn't it? Because you don't want to... You don't want to give too much away. But when you said father who isn't his father, I thought that was Don who helped... Uh, and, and was that stable force in Ben's life? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you're saying Donna's passed away. Mm. Ah, connections. Yeah. Even now I'm yeah. making connections. I'm yes. a bit slow. Oh. oh, no, you're not slow at all, David. I, I had imagined for some reason that it would have been his mother for some reason because well, it was Evelyn, but yeah. Yeah, well, it's natural to conclude that um, given her life path. Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. if the reader or the listener wants to find out more about the minutiae of life and how fulfilling and rewarding it is, they will have to go and read A Solitary Walk on the Moon, full of humour, pathos, trivia and delight. And <laughs> it's a Hachette release. I should have mentioned the author. It's Hildy Hinton. So, Hildy, thank you once again for talking with me. Thanks for having me, David. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.